Good morning to all of you, and also to those uh, watching online. Let me pray for us, and then uh, we begin. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts that we would uh, think today, may they all be pleasing in your sight. May your spirit speak to us. May they direct us to catch a vision of who you are. Amen. Now, Eric Weinheimer, he's an incredible adventurer. In 2001, he climbed to the top of Mount Everest. In 2014, he kayaked down the rapids of Grand Canyon, all 277 miles. And he did all of this while being completely blind. You see, at the age of four, he was diagnosed with a rare condition that ultimately led to the progressive loss of sight. And at age 14, he completely lost his sight. How then did Eric do all of this? How did he climb Mount Everest? We the first blind person to climb Mount Everest and to kayak all 277 miles of the rapids of the Grand Canyon. How did he do all of this while being completely blind? And he did all of this by listening carefully to the guides that accompanied him. If he had disregarded the advice and the counsel of its guides here, it would result in his death. And in our spiritual journey too, we also need to listen carefully to our guides. And that in today's passage, the Apostle John, he exhorts us to heed Christ's word, for he is the risen Lord. And he tells us, let us heed Christ's word, for he is the risen Lord. Now, in today's passage here, the Apostle John is on an island, and he has a vision of the risen Lord. And this vision of the risen Lord actually introduces all the rest of the visions in the book of Revelation. It's the first vision. But the first vision in the book of Revelation is not that of an event. No, it is that of a person. And the vision of this person then sets the tone for the rest of Revelation. And it tells us that in this vision here, that John tells us that we need to come to an encounter, to an existential encounter with the risen Lord. We need to expand our vision of who the risen Lord is. And when we expand our vision of who the risen Lord is, we would be much more inclined to hear his word. And in today's passage here, John gives us four reasons of this vision of the risen Lord in terms of why we should heed his words. Namely, that he is the risen Lord who speaks, he is the risen Lord who judges, he is the risen Lord who comforts, and that he is the risen Lord who admonishes through his spoken word. So that John here in this passage gives us four reasons, four reasons why we should heed the words of the risen Lord. So let's take a look at the first reason here. 
Reason one is that he is the risen Lord who speaks. And the verses reads here like this, I, John, your brother and partner in affliction, kingdom and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, John introduces him as a brother and a partner in the affliction, in the kingdom, and the endurance. And all these three terms, affliction, kingdom, endurance, they are all related together because the followers of Jesus will experience affliction. And the affliction comes because we are part of the kingdom of God that is engaged in conflict with the people of the kingdom of the world here. And this affliction then calls for endurance and perseverance. And this is a major theme in the book of Revelation. And all of this affliction, kingdom, endurance, they are all part and parcel of us because we are related to Jesus. Because we are related to Jesus. And but in the midst of all this affliction, Jesus speaks to us. Jesus speaks to John. Notice here, he's on an island called Patmos. Island is on a Greek, one of the Greek islands in the agency. It's a small island, maybe about 14 square miles here. And he says that he's on this island here because of the word of God and because of the testimony here of, uh, of the Lord here. Not he, he's on the Patmos, not because he's going there to evangelize, but rather he's on Patmos because he is in exile. He is in exile here. Now, when you think about it, you have to think that Patmos is probably not a modern version of Alcatraz. All right, it's not a modern version of Alcatraz. John wasn't working in the mines, nor was he part of a chain gang, you know that. He probably has some freedom to move around the island. Nonetheless here, life on Patmos was probably not that comfortable. Given his advanced age, John is probably about 80 years old right now. But nevertheless here, in his affliction, the risen Lord speaks to him. And so John says that he is in the spirit on the Lord's day, meaning that he is worshiping on the Lord's day and he gets a vision. The phrase here, the Lord's day, actually occurs only here in the New Testament. It's the only place where it occurs in the New Testament. And it speaks about Sunday here. And it denotes how the early church decided to worship the Lord Jesus on Sunday because that is his day, that is the day that he was resurrected. So he is here on the Lord's day here and he receives this vision here and he hears a loud voice behind him like a trumpet. And the trumpet then tells him to write on a scroll what you see and to send it to the seven churches here. Now the seven churches here, you see that they are actually very much, if I get it, this is Pat Moss here, all right, the island here, and you get the seven churches here. Why these seven churches here? Probably because of their geographical location showed that they were the natural points, the focal points of communication here, and that they were probably part of a postal route here. And here, the, these were the, probably the most common uh, 
ancient centers of the church, and they were most important centers of the communication here. Now, in this section here, just in these couple of verses, John receives a vision of the sovereign Lord, and the voice speaks to him and directs him to write for the benefit of the seven churches. You see here, we have a risen Lord who speaks through his servants to encourage his church in the midst of the affliction. And if the risen Lord speaks, should not his servants listen? So the first reason that John gives here is that why we should heed the Lord's word is because we have a risen Lord who speaks. We do not have a mute. We do not have a lifeless God, but one who knows our suffering and one who encounters us in our suffering and one who speaks to us in the midst of our suffering. Next year, we get a second reason here in terms of why we should heed the word of the Lord in that he is the risen Lord who judges. Reading from verse 12 to 16, then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes, man, his eyes were like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze, as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand and a sharp double-edged sword that came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength here. Just, just as a trivia pursuit here, which gospel gives us a picture of what Jesus is like? Which gospel gives us a picture of what Jesus is like? None of them. None of them here. None of them actually tells us what Jesus looked like. But here, we get a picture of what Jesus looks like, but yet it's not a realistic painting. It's more like an impressionistic painting. Notice here the various phrases in terms of the like, 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 and as. All right, it is an impressionistic painting here. So here, if, even here, it's not so much what Jesus looks like, but what he is like. It's not what Jesus looks like, but what he is like. The portrait here does not give us Jesus' external appearance. Rather, it tells us about his character and his attributes. And a lot of these verses here, they resonate with the passages that we find in Daniel 7 and in Daniel 10. So that if John was an impressionistic artist, he is painting with scripture. He is painting with scripture. So let's just take a look here. Firstly, you know, you see some resonance in terms of the relationship between Revelation and Daniel 7. So one of the first ones that we see that he sees one like the Son of Man. And the language of the Son of Man here, you have to recall that Jesus was the one who constantly referred to himself as the Son of Man. So we get the first clue here that this figure is probably Jesus. At the same time, it recalls Daniel 7. And in Daniel 7 here, you have this imagery 
of one like a son of man that was coming with the clouds of heaven, and that he approaches the ancient of days and was escorted before him. And as he approaches the ancients of days, he receives dominion, he receives glory, and he receives a kingdom that would last forever here. His dominion lasts forever, and this kingdom will not be destroyed. But at the same time, you see, you know, the figure of this is that the hair of his head was white as wool. But then if you take a look at Daniel 7, who has hair that is white like wool? It is the Ancient of Days. It is God himself. And the hair like the white of wool describes the Ancients of Days, but now it is used to also describe the Son of Man. And this then stresses the unity between Christ and God. It stresses the unity between Christ and God so that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus is exalted and that he shares in the power, he shares in the authority, he shares in the glory, and he shares in the rule of God so that the risen Lord is one with God. It echoes what Jesus himself said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And so we get this imagery of this connection between Revelation 1 and Daniel 7. At the same time, we also see the relationship here between Revelation 1 and Daniel 10. Firstly, you know, it says that he's someone that's dressed in a robe with a golden sash, and this is very similar to the individual in Daniel 10. Now, the individual in Daniel 10 is a little bit more, uh, we're not too sure in terms of who it is, but it either refers to God or an angel. But notice here, he's dressed in a linen with a golden sash, meaning that he's dressed in either a kingly or priestly attire. At the same time, you know, his eyes are like a fiery flame, very much similar to his eyes are flaming torches in Daniel 10 meaning here that he has this great insight and that he sees clearly, very suitable for someone who is going to judge the world. He always knows the spiritual conditions of those he judges. Thus, he is supremely righteous in his judgment. At the same time, his feet were like bronze as his fire and furnace, very much similar to Daniel 10, where feet like the gleam of polished bronze here, again, indicating his glory and strength. You have his voice here, like the cascading waters, similar to the sound, like his voice, like the sound of multitude, again, signifying his strength here. His face shining like the sun at full strength, his face like the brilliance of lightning. You can't look at his face in its full strength. Just like none of us can look at the sun in its full strength because it's too bright, you can't look directly at the face of God because it is too overpowering. He's too bright. And in fact, here, his brightness is so great that in the new heavens and the new earth, there's no need for the sun. There's no need for the moon. Why? Because the glory of God gives its light and the lamb, it's his lamp here. And so all of this describes the glory, describes the radiance of a risen Lord. And notice here, he also has holes in his hands here, seven stars here. And one of the imagery here is that he has seven stars in the right hand. 
And the seven stars in his right hand, it could possibly allude to a coin that we see roughly around this time. This is a coin that it's uh, during the reign of Emperor Domitian, and probably about 95. And Emperor Domitian was the emperor that was uh, emperor of Rome when uh, John was exiled. In about, about probably about 90 here, his infant son died. He had an infant son that died, and the infant son was then deified. And the coin was then struck to celebrate the deification, or the, the deification of his son. So notice here, there's the infant son here. He's sitting on a globe that represents the world. Yes, they did believe that the world was round in those days, all right? And then there are the seven stars here playing with the seven stars here. So the coin celebrates the deification of the mission son here, and the significance of all of this, you know, the infant sitting on the globe indicates the, it's the son's dominion and power over the world. Playing with the seven stars here indicates his cosmic significance here. Now, if, this is, if there's a certain allusion to this here, then it's telling us that Jesus, among the seven lampstands, that he is the one that has dominion and power over the church. And that is of much more significance than dominion and power over the world. At the same time, with Christ's holding of the seven stars, it's a polemic here against the imperial household that Christ, not Caesar, is the one that has cosmic significance. Christ is the one that has cosmic significance, not the imperial family. And lastly here, we then get this notion here that there's a sharp double-edged sword that comes out of its mouth here. The sword here represents judgment, and the mouth here then represents proclamation, and that Christ is the one who proclaims judgment. Christ is the one who proclaims judgment. What then is the implication of all of this here? That in light of the allusions and the references to Daniel 7 and Daniel 10, this vision presents the risen Lord as an exalted heavenly figure who shares God's glory, who shares God's power, and God's ability to see into the hearts of people, and God's authority to judge. What's the implication for us? If we have this, seen this vision of a sovereign Lord who judges, and if he is the one who judges, should we not listen to his word? Should we not listen to the advice on how we should prepare ourselves for the exam which he will give? After all, the greatest tragedy for a student, if you're a student, is that if you study really hard, but that on the examination day when you're handed the exam, you find out that you studied for the wrong exam. Wouldn't that be a tragedy? And so here, if Jesus is a sovereign Lord who is going to come to judge the world, don't you think you want to get some tips from him? Don't you think you want to get some advice from him? Although he's the one going to grade you. And so it then makes sense to listen carefully to what he has to say in order to prepare ourselves well for this evaluation. Next, we come to the third reason here, is that he is the risen Lord who comforts. And it says here that when I saw him, when I, John, saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead 
man. He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid, I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death in Hades. When John saw this vision of the risen Lord, he was scared of his wits. He felt like a dead person. And that is a natural reaction when we encounter a divine figure in all its glory. It is sheer terror. It is similar to what Isaiah felt when Isaiah saw the Lord seated on a throne. He said, I'm a goner. I'm done for. Why? Why? It is because of the great distance between God's holiness and our sinfulness that when we catch a glimpse of God for who he really is, the natural reaction is not casualness. It is not even reverence or awe. It is terror. It is that we fall down like dead men. But yet, in the midst of a terror, Jesus comes to us and comforts us. Jesus does what he did with his disciples. Remember when his disciples were on the Mount of Transfiguration and they heard this voice and they all fell down terrified? Jesus comes, touches them, and then comforts, comforts them. And so Jesus' words here comforts us. He tells us, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. But why? Why shouldn't we be afraid? Aren't we called to fear God? Why shouldn't we be afraid? Aren't we called to fear God? And that fear in Scripture can be understood in two ways. And that fear can refer to the terror we experience when we face the prospects of something terrible happening to us, such as the fear of judgment or the fear of death. And this is what I think John himself experienced when he saw a glimpse of Jesus in all his glory. But at the same time, fear can also refer to the deep reverence and awe we should experience when we stand before the holy God. So when Jesus tells John not to be afraid, he's not telling John, hey, we're birds. You can be casual with me. Hey, look, here's my throne. You want to try it? It's really comfortable. No, it's not like that. Rather, when the risen Lord tells John not to be afraid, he's telling John to replace one kind of fear with another kind of fear, to replace terror with reverence and awe, and that this reverence and awe is a kind of fear that enables us to come into his presence. It's a kind of fear that allows us to have a meaningful relationship with him. It is a holy fear that glorifies and that worships him. And then Jesus then goes on to provide several other reasons why John does not need to be afraid. He says here, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. Notice that all of these terms, first and the last, alpha and omega, and the living one, the living God, no, in the Old Testament, they were all used to refer to God. And now here, 
they are applied to Jesus. So that here, you know, that he doesn't need to fear because he is the almighty God. And not only that, he is the one that is alive forever and ever, and he is the one that holds the key over death and Hades. He has mastery over death and Hades. Why is this a comfort? Why is this a comfort to John? You see, when John saw the heavenly figure that stood ready to judge, he was afraid of the judgment to come, the judgment that will bring eternal punishment, the judgment that will bring the second death. But John, Jesus tells John that he does not need to fear the coming judgment because Jesus has mastery over death and Hades. Jesus has conquered death. He is therefore able to give life to those who follow him. Friends, if you are not a follower of Jesus, you should be terrified of the coming judgment. If you are not a follower of Jesus, you should be terrified of the coming judgment. But if you are a follower of Jesus and has believed that he's able to cleanse you from all your sins, you do not need to fear the coming judgment. So in this, these couple of verses here, why should we heed the words of the risen Lord? Because he comforts us through his word. Because he is the one that comforts us through his word. Now, let's take a look that at the last reason here, and that Jesus is the risen Lord who admonishes through his spoken word. Therefore, write what you have seen, what is and what will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand are the, you saw my right hand, oh, the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches here. Notice here, it begins with therefore. Therefore, in light of Christ's authority, as one who shares in the power and glory of God, as one who holds the keys over death, he then recommissions John to write. What you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. And that phrase here, those three words here, it refers to the past, present, and future orientation of the entire book of Revelation itself. What you have seen doesn't refer to not only what John has just seen up to this point in time. But it refers to all the visions that John will see in the, throughout the book of Revelation. Mainly they refer to all the visions he would have seen by the time he begins to write the book of Revelation. What is refers to the meaning of the visions. And what will take place it indicates that these visions here refer to what God is going to do in the future. And then he then interprets the vision, part of the vision here. He goes on to say that the seven stars are the seven angels. Who are these angels? Who are these angels? That's no easy answer to this question. But I think that they are probably heavenly beings who have spiritual oversight and spiritual responsibility over the church. They represent the church. But if so, they represent a church. Why does the seven letters, why are they addressed 
to the angels. Why are they addressed to the angels here? It's probably that these angels here have been entrusted by Christ with responsibility over the churches. At the same time here, by having angelic representatives, it's a reminder to the church that a dimension of our existence is in the heavens, that our real home is not with those who live on the earth. In the book of Revelation, the phrase, those who live on the earth, is a phrase that refers to unbelievers who worship the beast, who persecute believers, and who deserve divine judgment. So here, the angelic here representatives are a reminder that our true home is in heaven. And then John goes on to, then, uh, Jesus goes on to describe that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The function of a lamp is to give light. And so it's a reminder that the church is to be a witness to the world. We therefore have this responsibility to burn bright and to be a witness even in the midst of suffering. Nonetheless here, we can take comfort that Jesus is the one who is among the lampstands. He is the one who knows what is going on in the church. Moreover, you know, he is the one that is dressed in this priestly figure, the one, the long robe with the golden sash. And if that is true here, the priests in the Old Testament were those who had to trim the lamps in the temple so that it would burn bright. And so in this way here, Jesus as a priestly figure is the one who spurs us on to godly living so that we might burn brightly for the word, for the kingdom of God here. The interpretation of these angels and the lampstands is then points forward to the next two chapters of the seven letters here. And this is just a quick overview here of, this, of the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 to 3. There are seven churches here, seven letters here, and they are kind of, you can see that they are somewhat addressed in a somewhat of inverted sequence here. The letter to Thyatira is the longest here, and you can see that there's a certain symmetry between Smyrna and between Philadelphia. Both of these churches are the only two churches that have no nothing negative that's said about them. Moreover, both of them are also said to have, uh, said to have faced attacks from those who call themselves Jews, but who are really not Jews, but are the synagogue of Satan. So there's a certain inverted parallelism here. Now the significance of all of this, when you see, take a look, is that, that the condition of the seven churches is primarily not healthy. It's primarily not healthy here. Numerically, they're not healthy, and it's bounded by both unhealthy churches at the extremes here. And you find here that the problems facing the church are idolatry, sexual immorality, false teaching, complacency, things which resonate so much with the Western church here. The number seven is significant because it's number for completeness, meaning that these churches here are representative of the universal church, and therefore it is relevant for the church for each time and every location. But in the face of an unhealthy church here, 
Christ sends word to admonish them, to encourage them, and to warn them. And each of these letters will have a slightly different exhortation. But the common exhortation that is found in every letter, the common exhortation is this, that is found in every, each of the every seven letters is this, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. We should therefore pay heed to God's word. For the sovereign Lord admonishes the church through his spoken word here. So we see it here in terms of four reasons why we should heed the words of the risen Lord. He is the risen Lord who speaks. He is the risen Lord who judges. He is the risen Lord who comforts. And he is the risen Lord who admonishes through his word. Coming, leading us to remind ourselves again in terms that let us heed Christ's word to us for he is the risen Lord. Our response to the words of the risen Christ should is to heed, to listen. Let me just close with some applications for us. All right. How can we heed Christ's word to us? How can we heed Christ's word to us? How can we develop hearts that are willing to hear God's word to us? Instead of being defensive how can we develop hearts that are willing to listen to instruction and critique from the Holy Spirit? And I think that one of the ways here is by reminding ourselves here that our Lord is the one who loves us. He's the one who has loved us in chapter one. He's the one who has loved us. He has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom. And that when we remind ourselves as Jesus is the one who has given his life for us, we would be more inclined to listen to his words, even if they might be difficult. But the next question we should ask ourselves is that, how can we heed Christ's word to us collectively? How can we heed Christ's word to us collectively? When Christ evaluates the seven churches, he's not evaluating individuals but entire churches. Yet when we read and when we apply the seven letters, we typically apply it individually in terms of how God is speaking to me individually. And one of the reasons why that is so is that we have an independent rather than an interdependent mindset. We come much more from an individualistic rather than a communitarian framework. I mean, you, you see this individualistic thinking. I'm a professor, right? And I think that just the kind of test or project that students hate is a group project. When you turn up a group project, they all moan, you know, that because how, it's not fair, you know, someone's going to be a slacker. How can one grade be justified for the entire group here? The thing is that God will evaluate us individually but at the same time, he will evaluate us according to how we relate also to others. How we relate also to others. So as we work through Revelation 2 to 3, let us not consider in terms of how words, it's just how God's word is speaking to me individually, but also collectively to our family, 
and to our church community. And if a God calls us to repent of a sin, we learn not only to repent of our own individual sin, but also that of our family, that of our community. We think that that's strange to confess the sins of others, which we have not done. But that is the example that Daniel himself did. That Daniel in chapter 9, you know, he confesses not only his own sin, but also for the sin of his people. He prays not only for himself, but he also prays for that of his people here. So then when we heed God's word to us, let us not just only heed it individually, but also collectively. The last application here. How can we expand our vision of the risen Lord? Our willingness to listen to God's word is proportional to how small or how big we think our God is. So our willingness to listen to God's word will be much greater if we are able to expand our vision of the one who is speaking to us. But how might we achieve that? How can we expand our vision of the risen Lord? Let me just give you some quick suggestions here. One of it here is to have this desire to see the majesty of God, to inculcate a desire to see the majesty of God, to see the supremacy of God, and to value seeing that majesty as more important than other things that occupy our time. Secondly, is to have this willingness to be amazed and terrified, to be open and to have the willingness not only to be amazed, but also to be terrified by the holiness and the glory of our God. For our God is like no other God. Third, prayer. We pray that the Holy Spirit will open our eyes so that we may see God for who he really is. And lastly, imagination. To give ourselves space and time where we can reflect on the word of God and to let those words sanctify our imagination so that we can rightly think and imagine what this great God is like. Just as an example here, you know, you have the phrase here that his voice is like the sound of cascading waters. Imagine yourself standing by, beside the Pacific Ocean, talking to someone, and your voice is drowned out by the pounding surf. And that is a God that his voice is so loud that his voice is like the sound of cascading waters, the sound of pounding surf. On the, the notion here that his face is shining like the sun at full strength. When you go outside for a walk at noon, imagine if you're looking out the sun, can you actually see that sun? It's too bright. And that is his face, that is the glory of his face. The full brightness of it, imagine it. And at the same time, you know, imagine, can you then imagine that this exalted Lord, whose voice is so loud, whose face is so bright, can you imagine him with all his radiance and his power and strength, gently putting his comforting hand on you, the hand that held the seven stars, putting his hand on your shoulders? Just, just close your eyes and imagine that, all right? of this risen Lord 
who is so great, putting his hand on your shoulder and comforting you and saying, don't be afraid, you are mine. I am the first and the last. I hold keys over death and Hades. You do not need to be afraid of death itself because you are mine. When we allow God's word to sanctify our imagination, we then begin to have a larger picture of who God is. We can't think of people without mental images. And so we need to let God's word continually sanctify our imagination, our image of who God is. And, and through that way, we will come with an expanded vision of the risen Lord. Friends here, the risen, exalted Lord, he has spoken to us through his word. Let us therefore heed what he has to say. Let us heed Christ's word to us, for he is the risen Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, I pray that through this week here you would constantly refine our image of who you are. Help us, Lord, not to put you in a box, not to shrink you down, but to let you be who you are and would your Holy Spirit open our eyes so that we may truly see you for who you are. Amen.